Sergio, if you like what we're doing here, if you support the show and you want to give support to the show, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash let's talk native. And if you do so, we'll provide you some exclusive content and some things that uh, others aren't going to get when you get it. So support us by going to Patreon. Yahweh. Let's Talk Native is produced at the LTN Studios on the Cataraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. We break all the rules for native media by peeling back the layers of assimilation and indoctrination. No prayers, no buffalo speeches, and no spirituality shows. While this podcast does not provide a path to spiritual enlightenment, we do take a tough look at history, oppression, and our survival. But the real goal here is to bring our people together by breaking down what separates us. So, welcome to Let's Talk Native with John Kane. Say hello and welcome to Let's Talk Native. My guest today is, uh, is, is a good friend of mine and somebody who I've worked well together with. Um, it, my, my guest is, uh, Chaz Charles or Chaz Cater. Uh, Chaz is, um, uh, Mohawk from the Aqua, from Aquasasti. He and I, we, we actually worked together when we were, um, you know, kind of writing and helping with some policy issues with the, with the longhouse up in, in Aquasasti. So, and, and Chaz, you've been a guest on my show before. Uh, I know a couple of times, haven't you? I have, John. Yeah, it's nice to talk to you again, and I hope everything's well there at the Western Door. We do have a background working in, in writing and also on some broadcast projects together. Well, and, and you, uh, you wrote for a time. I don't know if you're still writing for uh, Indian Country Today, and, and, and I think you've had some other pieces that have been published along the way. There's been some freelance work that I've been able to contribute to. I'm not active with Indian Country Today at the present time. I'm actually going to be setting up my own website to see some of the older writing available, and uh, again, just kind of brush up, brush a few older projects off, and kind of update them to the present time. Well, Everything's always getting easier. Well, maybe you and I can collaborate on a few of those projects, and uh, I'll join you. You can join me. Okay, John, that sounds great. With you, I go back to when you were publishing and the Niva uh, materials that you would put out. Very, very strong writing. And my congratulations for your decade and more of uh, Native communication efforts. Uh, beautiful job, John. Well, I appreciate that. And I also want to give, uh, give you some props. I know you were, uh, you, you had uh, let me know that the New York, NewYorkTimes.com had, had featured uh, my podcast in one of their stories about Native podcasts. And in fact, uh, I just did an interview on Native America Calling. Uh, they were doing a program on uh, a Native podcast. So, I mean, it, it's good that that some of the mainstream media or more mainstream media is acknowledging that I even with us, with Native voices not being in the mainstream, we're still getting our voices out there. And, of course, that's one of the things that, that is really apparent. You know, the um, since the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, and the really the the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, we have actually benefited from um, the relationships that we have with with other people, marginalized people, and and I think our voices have been heard. That's why we've seen things like the Washington football team change its name, the Cleveland baseball team about to are in the process of doing it. 
Um, we saw Columbus statues being toppled right alongside some of these Confederate statues being toppled. So I, I think our voice actually got a little bit of a, of a boost from some of this, this uh, national call to social justice. I agree that there has been increased awareness of a lot of those side issues. That may be once we're just in the wheelhouse as far as Native cultural war uh, items. I can't say that I've personally been affected by any of those changes, but it's interesting to comment on it. I know that Jesse Jackson had the Rainbow Coalition, and he made appearance at OCA. And so we have to compare ourselves to where we are at now and where we were at when the Rainbow Coalition was about as open and a big tent environment that we were allowed to step in without having to ask permission. So it's interesting that there's more people available now to be involved. And yet at the same time, there's still room to be individual because there's a lot of mixed racial issues like with the Red House. There's Aboriginal land protector uh, involvement there. So it's really, it's, it's continued to diversify itself in a complex way. And yet, if you're tracking the issues, you'd say, we should have been talking about this 10 or 20 years ago in the same, same breath. Sure. Well, and I, and I think these, these platforms that in, uh, allow independent media to exist and, and, and thrive, I think, obviously, have contributed to it immensely. I mean, it used to be we had to wait till somebody would would give us an audience, and and now we can actually create our own audiences. So, on that note, <laughs> all right. So, what I want to talk to you about Deb Hallen. I mean, and you know, look, I'm getting into it a little bit, and you know, or have stepped into it a little bit, um, because I'm not euphoric over. Uh, over Deb Haaland. I wasn't that euphoric about her being a congressperson, uh, and I'm uh, and I'm not that enthusiastic about her being the interior secretary. Having said that, I'm not bashing her. I mean, I, I you know she may be as good a person for that uh, position as anybody from a native standpoint. My issue is that we're mixing, you know, we're we're mixing things up. I mean, for one thing, the interior secretary is not ours. We don't, it's not our interior department. And Deb Hallen wasn't elected by us or, nor was she nominated by us. She is a servant of the U S government. And that's what she, and that's what she's being um, nominated for to be, you know, to, to serve at the, at the pleasure of, uh, of Joe Biden as the interior uh, secretary. And I think when I hear people saying things like, well, wow, it's so it's so great. We're finally going to have a representative in there. I have to keep reminding people that she's not our representative. She, and and I guess to even go farther with it, what concerns me is that we don't need a native voice to be in those positions. We already have our voices. The problem is is really connected to being heard. And and my my fear is because she is native that she may enter into this position believing that she knows all the Native issues already. And she doesn't have to hear us because she can speak as a Native person on our behalf, although we haven't ever put her in that position to do that. Yeah, it's interesting today in The Guardian, the European-type media profile, if I can just quote now, here's her comment. Growing up in my mother's Pueblo household made me fierce. My life has not been easy. I struggled with homelessness 
relied on food stamps and raised my child as a single mom, she said. She hit on an 1851 remark by former Secretary of the Interior Alexander H.H. H. Stewart that it was his goal to civilize or exterminate us. I'm a living testament to the failure of that horrific ideology. I also stand on the shoulders of my ancestors and all the people who have sacrificed so that I can be here, Ms. Hallen said. So she's really hitting the right timber on what that is. But you can't argue the fact that the Biden team and transition has really been in loggerheads with each other because of the old guard of the Obama administration. She has a rival named Michael Connor, who is a former undersecretary uh, status. And that there's that thought there that there's a drain of the New Mexico uh, Democratic apparatus because outgoing Senator Tom Udall is also considered for the post. So you've really got, and it was first offered to the governor of New Mexico um, as of uh, two weeks ago. Mm. So it, there's been a volleyball effect with this nomination process. Well, and, and let me let me hit on her quote again, because when, when she and I and I saw that quote about you know that uh, what the the interior secretary said that his goal was to either civilize or what or exterminate or exterminate us. us. So, and when she says that 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 failed. How is she not casting herself as the civilized one? I mean, she's she's a part of that system. She's you know she's run as a Democrat, a part of that you know you know that apparatus. She not only ran but won. Um, she actually was the Democrat uh, the Democratic chairman for the uh, or chairperson for for that region, for, as I understood, before she ran for uh, for office. So, I mean. I got to think that that, you know, she's a living testament that that his work that he that he was successful. No, she wasn't exterminated, but she certainly was civilized in the manner that they regard as civilized. And, I, and you know, it, you know, I, I get into trouble because I talk about assimilation. I mean, let's be clear. Deborah Hallen, regardless of where she was born, I mean, she. um she actually was a bit of a military kid from understood. Her parents were military. She was military. I think she was raised as a, as a Christian and she, and, and again, she entered Democrat, big D Democrat, uh, uh, um, political, um, work early on in her political career. So I don't understand how that doesn't, uh, how that isn't being assimilated or civilized in the manner that, uh, that, that, that first, uh, interior secretary, secretary talked of. Well, there's also a piece in the Huffington Post which referenced the interest of the federally recognized tribal government. There was a collective letter that was published or was or excuse me was submitted without uh, being uh, being published and it talked about that the tribal government saw her as being completely qualified and the voice that they need at the present time. So that would appear to have been helpful to her nomination, which was confirmed yesterday, and she has now accepted it. So it looks like the die is cast to see how it goes for nomination hearings with the Senate. Well, and, and again, from an Interior Secretary standpoint, and, and keep in mind that it's the, the Bureau of Indian Affairs is under the purview of the Assistant Secretary. I mean, she would be the, you know, the, the, again, the, the Cabinet secretary that oversees all of this and look i'm not debating whether she has the 
uh, I don't know, the the educational background or the, or the qualifications. I, I don't know one way or the other. My concern is that very statement that she will be our voice. We need her to be the ears to hear our voices. We don't need her to speak for us. And, and, and again, we didn't elect her to speak for us. We didn't nominate her to speak for us. And, and but I, I will acknowledge that there was a solid push that came from a lot of sectors of, of you know, native territories um, to, you know, to pressure Biden into, into nominating her. I, I, I watched it play out over the last, uh, you know, the last several weeks. And, you know, so, she, you know, she obviously didn't get nominated in a vacuum. Um, and, and we know that, that Biden is trying to put, you know, make a demonstration, you know, uh, of diversity, uh, for his cabinet. Um, but, but again, I, I have to come back to the, you know, to my original premise is, is that we need to be, be watchful and, and, you know, it's, it's kind of like when Obama got elected president, you know, uh, Every black person who thought it was great to finally have a black president, yeah, that seemed like you know good at the time. But in the end, of the day, at the end of the day, how much did he do to work towards social justice? I mean, what what did he really accomplish um, to to you know level the scales in any meaningful way with with you know with black people, with, with uh, immigration, with native people? I mean, the Dakota Access Pipeline was uh, was built on his watch. Yeah, sure. Also, the Three Feathers Casino arrest took place under Eric Holder's attorney generalship. So sure. there's always a local awareness there. There was a meeting of the state attorney generals in Lake Placid at that time, the summer of 2001. And there was minivans of state attorney generals led by Eric Holder pointing at the building there on Route 37 in Aquasazni. And they said, there is the root of all evil. So you really understand things from a perspective of how does it affect me and how will it affect others? There's also the issue of the trust land native governments. And without there being a need to have trust land status for the Haudenosaunee nation, that there's always that separation in terms of we haven't gone anywhere. We're still here. And we're not worried about who the federal representative is because we're on a one-to-one basis here. So I understand the differences. They're, they're very unique from yours and I'm my own upbringing. Well, and, and you, you hit on a good point, because one of the things that, that keeps being said about what her responsibilities will be is to manage all federal lands, including tribal lands. That's what, you know, and I realize that that's the short version. But, but it does get into this debate about, how our lands are held and who holds it and are they really our lands i mean and this is this is you know just as big a question on the canadian side as it is on the you know on the u.s side when with this idea that the the federal governments will hold our lands for us for our use and enjoyment you know i i'm i'm, I'm troubled by that and 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 i think a stronger statement that suggests, you know, somebody willing to recognize that that we manage our own lands is, uh, you know, that uh, that's what I'm waiting to hear. And until I hear something that either, even hints that way, I'm going to look at her like every other interior secretary before her. Well, that's all you can do, John. I mean, there's been 53 uh, secretaries and a lot of people would be hard pressed to name the current one. David. <laughs> Bernhardt. 
Yeah. And he was a longtime interior uh, lawyer and, uh, you know, a fixture of the bureaucratic process. So, again, it's it's not as a formidable office as it was. Um, my interest in the in the position is, is that during the years of the Indian Wars and in the end of the 19th century, that was the most prominent office in the United States government. When you talk about Seward Spalley, that was the purchase of Alaska by Secretary of the Interior Seward during World during the Civil War. The the importance of that position has been diminished because of the American expeditionary you know, campaigns uh, since the War of eighteen ninety eight. Yeah, the, basically, basically, to, once once the United States became a global imperial imperial power, the and and they felt like they had uh, they they had already. Um, laid claim to every square foot of uh, you know of, of the continent, of, uh, um, absent uh, Canada. Um, I mean, yeah. Once their their manifest destiny, you know, had you know had gone from sea to shining sea, um, the interior, the, the work of the interior department became uh, you know marginalized because now it became state department it became you know international diplomacy and that kind of stuff nobody look the united states was looking over the shoulder of, uh, as to what the what r- the rest of the world was doing even before this you know the um the the spanish american war you know the, the rest of the world just looked the other way when the united states uh, uh illegally occupied hawaii i mean so you you see how this thing ha- has played out and and, and you're right. I mean, there was a time that the the interior secretary was was really the person in charge of American expansionism. Yeah, you, you spoke to it very well, John. We can't forget about the Kingdom of Hawaii, and we also have to be aware that our our brothers and sisters there in Alaska had their own opinion about becoming part of the U.S. So those are unanswered questions. Sure, sure. Well, and, and you brought up something else that I, I think is is important. I mean, for all of the, yeah, again, the celebration about gaining a congressional seat um, with a, with a native person, um, that goes away. And so, you know, so rather than you know the the two women uh, that were elected, uh, not this past well reelected this past cycle, um, now there'll, there'll only be one. And you know. Although I think there is a, there, I think there's a native woman who is a Republican that uh, ran for one of those seats down in that neck of the woods as well. And most of native, most people in Congress who are native are Republicans. And I think it's important that people realize that that native people who entered the political, the U.S. political system, more often lean lean heavily to the right. And we can go back in time. I, I, again, people forget that the United States once had a native vice president. And he was terrible for Native people. Charles Curtis, he was the vice president to uh, Herbert Hoover, and he oversaw some of the largest transfers of Native lands to the United States um, as a congressman, Republican congressman, a Republican senator, and I think he was from I think he was from Kansas, um, if I recall, um, uh, and for um, uh, and, and and as a vice president, he was one of the guys that they actually. Um, when the Osage murders were 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 happening, that he he was reached out to because he felt you know native people thought well he's a native person and he's in you know he's kind of reached this 
broke those glass ceilings, as they say, and he was of no assistance. He 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 offered nothing back to the Osage during the um, you know that decade or more or several decades of murders for their oil revenue that uh, that transpired at the at the beginning of the the twentieth century. Yes, and let's not forget the efforts to relocate Haudenosaunee Confederacy. Uh, nation members to Kansas, of which small numbers of families went out there, never to be heard from again. Sure. Literally just re- reduced into the b- past history, and uh, nobody really batted an eyelash there. They were either civilized, civilized or exterminated, I guess. Yeah, I'm uh, ground into <laughs> dust. Well, and, and of course, you know, one of the most prominent um, native or uh, recognized as native um uh, politicians of, of recent time was was uh, uh, Ben Nighthorse Campbell. He ran originally uh, for Congress as a Democrat, switched parties, then ran and became a, a Republican senator. And and again, I think people kind of forget this. And I know there was a lot of um, you know a lot of praise and and you know a lot of excitement over two Native women being uh, being elected, but. Again, when you talk about being ground into the dirt here, that's kind of what happens with these people who get into these positions. You know, it's it's worth noting that that um, neither Sharice David nor Deborah Halland were ever put into the same category as um, uh, AOC or you know or, or any of that that group of six uh, women who the Democratic Party thought was way too progressive and were too much of uh, in the way of outliers from the party. Sharice David and uh, and Davidson. Uh, Deb Hallen were pretty much mainstream Democrats. Sure, that's definitely an issue there in reference to Halen's own policies, talking about abolishing um, immigration and customs enforcement as an agency or as a part of the Homeland Security uh, Department. Those have been uh, beliefs or uh issues that she has been tagged with as a former supporter of um, Senator Warren uh, in, in, in her own presidential campaign, Elizabeth Warren's presidential campaign. There's the concern about Halen's support for the Green New Deal, a legislative plan aimed at addressing climate change and economic inequality. And so she's been kind of uh, rounded up into the defund the police uh, politics. And of course, that is a galvanizing or a div- divisive um, representation, no matter how you look at it. Because, of course, Pelosi and AOC have their own interior fight going on. Pelosi embraced Haland as one of the best re- congressional representatives that she's ever served with. So you can see some of that um, middle ground there that, that's been taken at the leadership level. Danny Hoyer, also a uh, former uh, Democratic whip, he said that uh, even though they're, they're, that the Biden team is plucking away House members in a, in a razor-thin majority, he doesn't want to appear to be casting any negativity about Halen's appointment because or nomination because he feels that they can't lose. They've got such a, a, uh, a good backup plan in order to fill the position. But he reiterated the main concern is there won't be as able a Democrat appointed to fill her seat. 
Well, and and you know this, therein lies the issue that I have as far as native people losing, um, if if in, indeed some of these folks are these great leaders, then we lose them too. And 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 I'm not suggesting you know that that you know what her bona fides have been for, um, you know for native leadership, but I I always, I always come back to that. I mean if. If the belief is that we should aspire to do that and that our young children should see native you know, faces in these positions of, of American uh, you know, politics, what are we saying that we should be aspiring to? If, it, if that's not assimilation, you know, then, then I'm not sure, sure what is. I mean, this is literally the, the idea that the way we secure our future is to join the the government of our of our of our oppression. I mean, and 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 I'm not suggesting that you know that, that having you know people who have more open minds in those positions doesn't benefit us. But if it's if it comes at the cost of losing some of our best people, and you know it's the same thing that that New Mexico has got to be concerned about. Are they going to or or Congress is going to lose to lose their their so called qualified people? for these other positions, where does that leave the house and where, where does it leave New Mexico? Well, to speak to that, she's an enrolled member of the Laguna Pueblo. She became the first chairwoman elected to their development corporation board of directors. That's a Laguna owned business created to strengthen the Laguna community and its economy. She then served as the state's vote director for native American in the Obama's 2012 presidential reelection campaign. After that, she was the tribal administrator for the San Felipe Pueblo from January 2013 to November 2015. And, of course, she's the past chair of the Democratic Party of New Mexico, Native American Caucus, from 2012 to 2013. They're losing an awful lot of leadership right under just with her being shuffled from office to office. Well, and, and the concern also has to be this idea that there's somehow this seamless transition from from native government to state government and to and, and to federal government. Uh, um, this look, th- it should concern people. And especially if native government is being used as a stepping stone to to basically <laughs> jump ship. I mean, I, I'm sorry to put it that way, but if that's what it's being used for, that should concern some people. I think that there's a perception that the native voter is predominantly democratic and espouses uh, non-conservative views. And and when I say that, I don't say that as a native person. I say that from a mainstream point of a journalist, because there's always an attempt to pigeonhole a lot of these um, minority statuses that aren't fully represented in a mainstream way. We both know a lot of people uh, throughout Indian country with uh, air quotes around that. And in Oklahoma, you're more likely to find a a Republican voter that has a native uh, tribal affiliation or enrollment because that's just the politics of the area that they're located in. Well, it so also it's not surprising. It, it also, you know, overlaps with, you know, with the, the domination of, of Christian faith in many of these territories um, and military service and, and a lot more. Hey, Chaz, we're, we're, we're at the bottom of the hour, so we'll take a break and, and we'll come back. I, I, but we'll hit on that a little bit. This idea of what is the perception of what a native 
person's political uh, affiliation is or might, might be. We'll talk about that when we come back. This is John Kane. My guest is Charles or Chaz Cater, a uh, longtime friend. Uh, and we'll be right back after this. Thanks for coming back. This is John Kane. This is Let's Talk Native. My guest is Charles Cater, uh, a, a journalist, uh, somebody that I've I've worked with in in helping with uh, with policy, uh, from, uh, especially regarding the uh, the longhouse in in Aquasasne, uh, and, and a few other things. We, we've done some. We've collaborated a few times over the years, um, and I've asked Chaz to to join me here to kind of parse a little bit about this Deborah Hallen nomination, but perhaps even delve in a little deeper. As we, as we left off, we were, we were talking about this perception about what a native person's um, political leanings might be. And you, and you, you correctly um, stated that, that many people in the media assume that native people are somehow lean to the left and that we are, you know, that if we were politically active, we would be Democrats. And, but it doesn't recognize the fact that there are some major influences that have uh, affected political leanings, including military service, which, which everybody's quick to point out native people enlist at the highest rate of any other group of people in the United States. Um, the, the imposition of religion and Christianity onto our territories, the Choctaw nation of Oklahoma passed a resolution declaring that they were a Christian nation, even as the United States claims to have a separation of church and state. But, but this, this notion and this overbearing, um, uh, impact that the churches have on native territories oftentimes, again, pushes, uh, you know, pushes people, you know, native people to, to the right. Um, so you know you, get, you have military, you have you you have uh, you know church, and and frankly there are there are other considerations that oftentimes push native people to the right. And if you look at places like Oklahoma or the Dakotas, I mean some of the the states that have large native populations are oftentimes the the reddest states in in the United States. And I'm not saying there isn't some. Native people who, who who lean to the you know you know who, who lean blue, um, but again our numbers are small and we you know in in the interest of uh, surviving uh, in the environment of a dominant culture, we have learned how to get along with I mean with so much of this 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 right leaning uh, you know red state mentality. We always come back to all politics is local. And in a lot of these communities, tribal communities that have been moved through the trust land process through history, you continue to see there's a tug of war between necessity to maintain affiliation to the culture. And then you get into the whole subsistence living, which is often at a bare minimum level. And in one of the comments in reference to accepting this nomination, he does make reference to having to balance. And if I can just read another quote. Go ahead. That 
issues under Interior's jurisdiction aren't simply about conservation. They're woven in with justice, good jobs, and closing the racial, wealth, and health gaps. I'll be fierce for all of us, for our planet and all of our protected land, she said. So I catch that good jobs part, and you know what I read into that? That the pipeline projects, when the oil, uh, when the when the selling rate of oil will reach a certain amount, will be considered with due diligence. And I don't know how you can read that any any other way. The job agenda in the Department of the Interior is highly controversial because it goes against what the native values are that have been stated repeatedly through the land defender movement and standing rock type of demonstrations. Well, you go back to um, to Obama's administration, uh, not actually before the, uh, the 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 Dakota Access Pipeline, when he went to uh, to Standing Rock or, or Cannonball and and delivered a speech. He went there as if you know, again mar- marking this historic occasion where a sitting president goes into quote unquote Indian country. It just so happens that the that the territory that he goes to was the territory of his senior policy advisor uh, Jody Gillette whose brother happened to be the the tribal chairman of Standing Rock. So he goes out there and he quotes Sitting Bull in his speeches and uh, and then talks about building something for the future of the children there. I mean, using a Sitting Bull um, quote in in his speech. And so what got built there? A a pipeline and and a pipeline that that didn't, you know, it, it was never going to be the job creator. All of this Keystone XL pipeline stuff, all of this, all of this pipeline development, uh, they are not jobs programs. Now, I will say that when they open up things like the Arctic Refuge and some of these other protected lands, you know, for for mining like Bears Ears and different places. Oh, yeah, they're going to throw some native uh, native people into that workforce and they're going to try to lure them in. Look, I go back a few years when the when NCAI their president, you know, talked about um, the United States. How do you phrase it? He said something like 10% of the United States energy resources are on native lands. And it's like, then how are they the energy, the resources of the United States? I mean, the, the mixed messaging there, which almost sounds like open for business signs. Uh, you're right. It, 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 it absolutely violates what most people are recognizing as the the land defender movement, the water uh, the water protectors movement, all of that stuff. I mean, we, you know, a lot of the land back movement is is tied to protecting the land, not just claiming the land. Yeah, she really checks off an awful lot of the things you want to see positive in your citizen. You know, she has a bachelor of arts in English, nineteen ninety four, from University of New Mexico, single mother. She formed a business that sold salsa, uh, a company to support herself and her daughter. Um, so she, she, she attended law school without passing the bar. That was a deliberate act. There's a lot of things that she's going through the filters in order to be recognized at a mainstream level and not victimized as a minority member. So she's shoulder to shoulder with these people, and yet you can you continue to see how at each level of the filters – it takes further and further away that grassroots understanding. Well, and that's it's the, really what we're discussing. It, it's the American dream, right? And this is like that's also part of what uh, what Obama um, spoke of when he went out to uh, Standing Rock. He said, it, you know, it was his job to ensure that Native people 
had um, their opportunity to, you know, to attain the American dream. And it's like, do you not understand that your ver- what you call the American dream has not exactly been our aspiration here? But you're right. She she does check all of those boxes. And and, you know, when you when you look at it all. Yeah, she she's pretty civilized. <laughs> you know, so you know it. It actually contradicts you know her her statement about her you know proving that intent of civilize you know or exterminate you know being a failure. You of anyone have done the terrific job of publicizing and reminding people that Abraham Lincoln, for as strong a figure in American history that he represents for freedom, equality, and a life not completely lived, that he hung a good number of our brothers and of our brothers, at least at that time, and and, and the mass hanging that occurred. You've done very well. And well, and that anniversary, that anniversary is coming up in a few days. I mean, it's it's literally the day after Christmas in uh, in 1862, a week before he delivers the Emancipation Proclamation, and and that will not go unnoticed. I mean, uh, you know, I I bring it up every year because. This is part of the narrative that if you leave this off, it makes the narrative that is delivered false because it, it's false by omission. And and I think this is this is part of the you know part of the problem. I mean, I think we we do have to um, we we do have to paint a complete picture. And and I and when I hear people say, "Well, we're we're trying to erase history by toppling a Columbus statue," we're saying, "No, the Columbus statue is erasing history." And 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 you know those carvings into Mount into Mount Rushmore, those are erasing history, because they are a false representation. Especially, I, mean, I think about those faces up on on the, the, that that mountain face. Uh, I mean, l- l- peering down over the the Lakota. I mean, I mean that's every bit the intimidating you know uh, visual. That any Confederate statue, you know, that that peers down over uh, over a black community might be. It's the ultimate embodiment of the get over it movement. And I've been told more than once, well, if you didn't have this chip on your shoulder, I, we, we we would have more to agree on. And I, I think about those statements and I go, how much do I have to discount my own understanding of American history and world history to not see the extractive capitalism which has occurred and you want me to get over that i think it's a it's a it's a retrograde approach and i will personally i want to call it knuckle dragon because i've done my homework you've done your homework we know that these are tremendous events that we have to remember we can forgive but we can never forget and we do it for those that had no voice because for what you and i are doing right now would be absolutely unheard of they, they would raid our homes and drag us from our our living quarters because we were speaking out against what is essentially the American dream as it's occurring. It's an American nightmare for some people. That perspective also has to be recognized. Well, and 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 the point that I I try to get across to people is don't interpret my uh, you know my statements as whining. I'm I'm not whining uh, or or trying to cast myself as a victim. I feel empowered now more so than 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 I personally felt empowered ten years ago. Because like you're you're right, we have gotten to a place where we do feel strong enough to speak out uh, on these issues. Where 
you know, generations past, you know, our people would have been murdered for speaking some of the stuff that we're talking about now. I mean, look, they tried to outlaw us even doing ceremonies and, uh, and Thanksgivings and these kinds of things because they were scared of us. They were scared we were going to whip up some sort of frenzy, uh, you know, where we would take some land back. I mean, and, you know, so they outlawed, you know, our very, you know, our cultural practices. The residential schools was about killing the Indian. It was about killing part of who we were. And, and again, civilizing, you know, turning us into good Americans with liberal arts degrees and, you know, know, being the Democratic Party chair and that kind of stuff. You know, here's where I come back to, Jazz, and I got to say this. Where any of these people who who put themselves out in the public like this, and, and, you know, and this includes, you know, folks like Charles... um, uh, Mark Charles and, and some of these other folks that, that get out there. Look, even prominent na- names like Suzanne Harjo and that kind of stuff. Some of these people have a real difficult time when we actually talk about things like sovereignty. When we actually talk about being a person, a native person, who rejects the imposition of American citizenship. That's a really tough, that's tough for these guys. And 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 until somebody... In one of those positions, you know, and and now that Helen looks like she's, you know, she's on her way to become the Interior Secretary, until she she can acknowledge that while there are people like her who seek to have success in the American system, there are people like us who seek to have success and maintain our our distinction and our autonomy. And, and that autonomy, as you've said, and as I've come to learn it, is it's carried at an individual level. If 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 the passivity of a voter uh, of an electorate, whether it be a tribal government or a, 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 a town board, that the apathy of the voter is to allow there to be a representation of their vote, whether it was cast or not, and then never check back up on who's on on what they're doing with that voice. I understand leadership because of what I've seen as bringing a message back to the people that have voted you in to carry that message and then allow them to have input into it. And unfortunately, what we see is all oh, things are happening too quickly. We didn't have a chance to bring you in, in, into the full um, understanding of what we were doing. And we had your best interest at heart. That is not a check and balance system anywhere. If you were a Roman politician and in and, and, and the Roman Empire era and you were doing things which weren't speaking to your constituency, they might pull a, a dagger out on you and show you how sharp it was. But here we're considered to be poor examples of working with others because we're espousing different views which may or may not be aligned with the leadership. And when you hear about tribal leadership, I can only speak to do they remember to go back to those houses that they knocked on the door and asked for the vote? Do they continue to go back to those houses and say, how am I doing? What should I be doing more of? And what should I be doing less of? It's always a balancing act that I never see really carried through the whole way. Well, and I think, and and that therein lies part of the problem. Uh, You know, I, I don't necessarily think that our vote is what they're after because I don't think our votes matter that much in, in their system, but it's about 
what it demonstrates when they look they they say that you know you can judge a you know a society by how much they they you know they reach out and and uh, look after the lowliest people in that in in that society i think some of this outreach in native territories is window dressing i don't think they 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 need, they don't need our vote and and nor are they that interested in in our vote. I but the the idea of making overtures over to it, it uh, to it is is what is what's important. When you can when you can you know suggest that you've won the native vote, that's something that you that can go as a badge of honor, even though that the numbers on it end up being pretty small. I mean, look, Jazz, you know yourself, we don't vote in native elections because it's not our system. I mean, we get we get back to the conversation about the two row. I mean, there and and the two row isn't just a Haudenosaunee concept. This was a this was a you know a policy that we shared with with many Native peoples, and 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 it was about acknowledging on shared spaces in this idea of peaceful coexistence that we that we have parallel paths across our mother. And that we don't need to overtake each other. We don't need to, you know, destroy each other. We don't need to, you know, to try to steer somebody else's path. Or in the, in the case with, with Europeans when they showed up, we don't need to steer their ship and they don't need to steer our canoe. But what we noticed in particular with, when it came to uh, reaching out and trying to have these peaceful relations with Europeans, that, that we had to, to ex explain more thoroughly that, we didn't need you in our canoe and we don't need our people in, in yours. And, and you cannot ride with a foot straddling each vessel. And, you know, and, and you know, I can always come back to, you know, as I'm having this debate with, with people about voting and running for office and serving in the military and all that other stuff, I can always come back to the two row. But then, then you will hear voices that come, including from our own territories and from some of our own people that say, well, but the reality is, you know, that doesn't exist anymore. Or we've, as, what was the, the, the quote? We've lashed our canoe to their ship for many years now. And so we have some people amongst us that, are, that have a real defeatist attitude and they only see finding comfortable spaces within those systems of oppression as a, as a route to survival. I can only thank the, the viewership or the readers of Let's Talk Native on Facebook for their offered opinions, and many of them have offered many opinions. I won't say that any of them are wrong, but that whole line about that our canoe has been lashed to the ship, it reminded me of a deer being hit by a, by a pickup truck, and it was stuck in the grill as it drove down the road. The deer and the truck became one for a brief period of time, but the deer was not allowed to stay on the front of the truck until the point that the owner of the truck could separate those two things. So if there has been a collision between the ship and the canoe, I surely want to be told there that the canoe is no longer uh, seaworthy or, or, or lake-worthy, I guess, because it still ends up being, that's our canoe. We still need to maintain that distinctiveness. And as you've included it in your preambles to a number of your media productions, that distinction is the is the only thing that separates us. And I'm going to quote uh, Daryl Kipp, the linguist from the Blackfeet Nation, that we are merely brown people standing on the side of the road. And we need to keep those things alive within us, not out of anger, 
but out of out of an understanding and modeling to our young people. Those grandchildren that you took a picture of, you're very proud in there. I want to offer recognition of your late son-in-law, less than white pigeon. These are all generations that need this reinforcement right up until they have their own children. And we're not doing it to be rabble rousers. We're doing it so that there's another view to hear from and subscribe to. And that's what you've done, John. Well, and I think, again, I think to maintain um, a level of Native identity, you you we can't do it with this idea that we have been conquered that that we have been subjugated and and that's what much of this is about i mean the, look in 1924 when they passed the indian citizenship act and declared we were all citizens we didn't we didn't weren't asked you know our permission to declare us and we weren't asking to be declared us citizens it it was an imposition i mean that and i've talked about this before that act even in 1924, was already being cast as a war crime called denationalization, the idea of stripping somebody's national character away and imposing another character upon them. And yet it, it, goes, it goes completely unrecognized. It gets a little bit back to you know, what we said in the first hour when we talked about this, how the, the international community just stood back and let the United States have its way. It let, let, let the United States have its way with all kinds of atrocities against Native people, well, and, and Black people, I mean, slavery. But, but even as it went into, into places like Hawaii or into the Philippines, I mean, I, I read the, the book True Flag by, by Stephen Kinzer, and, and I listened to him in an interview who suggested that Americans who were fighting in the Philippines found themselves, for the first time in American history, firing upon indigenous people fighting for their own independence. And I'm thinking, what the hell do you think we were fighting for? And, and so the United States waged war against Filipinos to conquer them, not to, not to liberate them from Spain. So this is, you know, this is the, the history. And, and look, this isn't, you know, this isn't rewriting history. This is telling the truth. And making sure that while the United States will always have their happy stories with their with what they claim to be happy endings, it is important that to paint the full picture, you cannot tell the story of Abraham Lincoln and the you know and the um, uh, Emancipation Proclamation without noting that a week prior to that, thirty-eight Dakota were hung by the neck in a massive gallows in Mankato, Minnesota, on his orders. I mean. I don't know how you tell that story, but that's the way it's been told. That's a, that's the way it's been, it's been told for over 100 years. Yeah, and the flip side of the Philippines fight, which was America's first Vietnam, really, that the that the old 38 caliber pistol was upgraded to the American 45 caliber with instant knockdown power because they said those Moro gorillas were hopped up on jungle juice and they came out like crazy people. Well, those crazy people must have left an impression because they're still firing that 45 caliber, you know, in the process of military and law enforcement um, activities. And it's not intended as a um, as a shot across the bow. That's a man killing round or women killing round as well. Who's the, who's so, the, the media mogul at the time? Um, Hearst? 
William Randolph William Hearst, Randolph. Right, there's another one. Yeah, th- this guy was an imperialist all the way and uh, and loved casting any person of color as monkeys in uh, across the, the the media world that he controlled at the time. I mean he and he did it to the to to Queen Lilio Kalani from Hawaii, he did it to the Filipinos, he did it to native people. I mean it was it was this constant barrage of dehumanizing images that his newspapers and his media uh, empire w- was broadcasting uh, all, you know through his entire life. Happened in Cuba also. Oh, Remember yeah, the Cuba. Maine? You know, I mean, everything really is a cascade. A good notable figure to study when you want to see the, the transition between the Indian Wars and then the uh, National Imperialism, uh, the yeah. Reorganization Act. Oh, yeah. Yep. I want to give credit to Larry Thompson and Dana Lee Thompson, their understanding of the IRA and the citizenship uh, efforts from 1924. They really make it clear they were only looking for certain types of natives to gain the citizenship, those that held doctor degrees as medical doctors, lawyers, establishment figures, and then later they expanded it. But the true intention was that they wanted their own people to be recognized from the from the white mainstream bureaucratic sense. These were the new Indians that they wanted to see. They didn't want to look back just merely 30 years before when Wounded Knee, that Wounded Knee, the massacre with Bigfoot laying in the trench, freezing for three days before he succumbed. That's why the Wounded Knee was taken over as an American Indian movement action. It wasn't because it was symbolic as a little white church on a hill. It was because that's where a massacre took place. And it was it was people showing that we won't stand for that again. And it was it was it was under a hundred years that had taken place. So we have to remember a hundred years sometimes is the span of one elder's life if they took care of themselves. Or we're able to make it that long. Well, we and and, and I and I make the point that if you do a, a timeline of Native history, um, American history is only a blip on that on that timeline. And I think that's you know that is what erasure looks like. Erasure is when you take an a you know ten, fifty, a hundred thousand years of of a people's history, and you reduce it down to just living as animals until white people showed up. Chaz, I want to thank you. I want I want to thank you so much for for joining me. This is uh this has been a great conversation. I think you you added a lot to this uh you know to this conversation and and we'll see. Uh, you know, I'll say it again. I hope that Deb Haaland does the right things, uh, not the right thing, but the right things. And I hope she doesn't attempt to be our voice, but rather being their ears. Yes, very much, John. And I hope when she identifies herself, she won't say she's a 35th generation New Mexican, as she's claimed, but that she's just one of us on the red road of life. Yeah, we'll we'll see. Yeah, we'll we'll see. I think some people get mixed up what came first, the chicken or the egg. But (laughs) so, Jazz Gator, uh, my good friend, thank you for joining me right here on on Let's Talk Native. It's it's been a pleasure. And I want to thank you for for listening, for viewing, and... uh, We'll see you next time. We'll right here on Let's Talk Native. Yahweh.